Is it right if we just talk a little tonight? I, um, I do have a, a message um, that I'd like to preach, but I don't want to um, pass up an opportunity. I, I drove a, a gentleman to a treatment facility today, and in talking, uh, we both got pretty charged up. I had about three and a half hours to, to drive very early this morning. Had to leave about five this morning, and I have not been getting up that early uh, lately. But uh, his name is Mike Carroll, and Mike has uh, graciously given me permission to share a little, uh, share his story because he's actually been sharing it quite a bit himself and uh, wanted me to encourage uh, what happened. Because of something that happened Sunday, he wanted his story to be told. So um, <clears throat> I'm going to try to make this short but still not miss anything important. Back in November, I was driving from home to the church. I was running late, and I'm on 279, I see this. Gentleman, close, probably close to my age, I couldn't really tell, but, you know, clean-cut guy just walking down the road, and I'm in the church van, because I was going to have to go pick up some stuff for the church that wouldn't fit in my vehicle, and, and I didn't really recognize it as the Holy Spirit speaking to me at first, I just felt like, well, maybe you should pick him up, and it was November, and he's wearing shorts, and he's got a hoodie, I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe not, maybe he's just walking, and I'll waste my time, turn around for him to say, no, that's all right, I'm just taking a walk. And let me just say that I, like five miles later, I'm still arguing apparently with the Holy Spirit that I'm running late, and finally I realize the Lord is trying to get me to pick this, uh, this guy up. So I whip the van around thinking he's probably already gone, and uh, I get back there, and I offer to give him a ride, and he said, he said sure. And of course, he, he was heading the opposite direction where I was going. And some of you know that's what's happened at New Song over the f- past few years. Um, you know, we didn't really have a jail ministry before someone came and got saved at church that needed us to help them through an addiction issue and that basically formulated our drive because the need was there um, every church should but I, I hate to say it just wasn't on the radar as far as uh, what I was thinking but well, now we spent considerably amount of time ministering to folks in jail and, and as they get out and he began to tell me about a, a drinking addiction and that his wife had, had will have nothing to do with him now and asked me if I'd at least drop him off where they live so that he could get some things and I began to tell him about the Lord telling me to come pick him up. He said, you really believe that? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, I've had enough instances in my life. I know when it's God. You know, it took me a little bit, but I, and he just kind of, you know, tears started in the side of his eye. He just kind of looked at me and said, I've never believed in God. I've gone to church before, but I've never really believed. I never really understood anything. I never really read the Bible. He said, but I, I'm hitting such a low point. I walked out of jail and it was cold and I knew I had to walk from Benton County Jail all the way to Vaughn. And he said, uh, he said, I just said, Lord, he just says, finally said, I, I prayed for the first time. I said, God, I'm cold. And he looked down the sidewalk. He said, it looked like a perfectly laundered sweatshirt that somebody, a hooded sweatshirt had laid out on the, on the sidewalk. Not dirty or anything, just laid out like as if, you know, he prayed it and there it is. So he put that on. He made it all the way to where I saw him and he was saying, God, I'm tired, you know. Um, hang over everything else going I, I, I just I'm tired and then I pick him up and I tell him that needless to say that day Mike accepted the Lord uh, right there in the church van in the parking lot and uh, after several calls to his wife and, and her answering they uh, reconciled and actually came to a new song a few times and then Mike went back into struggles and I tried to contact them back and lost track of them and this last Friday um, kind of have to back up this last week I'd had a dream uh, that I knew was God, and it was pressing me to, to produce fruit, more fruit, uh, more souls saved. And 
every day of the week I'd had an agenda to go into the office and get some things done, and nothing was working out. Finally, by Friday, I said, God, apparently you have other plans. I just, I can't run a schedule this week. So last day of the official week, it's yours. Just whatever you want to do today. Well, in walks Mike, barefoot. He'd walked from a decision point to the church. He'd been at the jail and then walked a decision point and then walked barefoot in here. Had been on a two-week vendor, um, desperately in need of a lot of care, uh, both physical, spiritual. And uh, so that that whole day was spent with uh, trying to get him some basic supplies. Some of you were reached out to, didn't know who it was for, and you and you gave uh, items, and that was a and big help. So we got his clothes laundered, got him a place to get cleaned up, and, and he'd been living in an abandoned house. Uh, but another... A uh, guy in the church was with me, and we uh, was determined to find him a hotel, and there was no vacancies uh, for the hotels because of the graduation in town. So he was back to his car, and we were praying, God, you got to do something because he can't be staying in that abandoned house. He can't be staying in his car. We, we, we couldn't find a place. And, and uh, you know, we've had plenty of opportunities to put people up in my own home, and after a couple of situations, I told my wife, okay, I don't think the Lord's really wanting us to put our kids at risk um, unless we really know he's telling us to take them home. So kind of stuck. Well, I didn't know, but um, we put in an application for Teen Challenge, which is a, uh, has been around for a long time. It's not just for teens, but it's a drug, alcohol, and addiction treatment program through the Assemblies of God. And uh, you don't have to be in an Assembly of God church to go there. They, are, they actually have one of the highest success rates for people getting over addiction in the United States. Um, but since they're faith-based, a lot of... Um, Parole offices and all won't order people there. So I've had a lot of difficulty trying to get guys uh, to that program. So I just, out of like I've done for others, he said he would go. So I put in an application at 2.30 on Friday. And they already picked apart a few problems. He had a court case and some other things. Let me tell you, um, Sunday, someone, by the leading of the Lord, who I don't know who they are, but they said, I don't usually do this, but they gave some money to Dave Donahue to give to him now I had decided not to give him money because he was having a problem with alcohol and I'd get him food or whatever and I'd buy it but I wasn't gonna give him cash and normally people would think that but somebody obeyed the Holy Spirit and Mike during that service that he was here experienced God again in such a way he said it was the first worship time he really felt God it was the first message where he really got what God was saying through his word and he said he had, his heart was on empty, and he had only one place that might accept him in, and his aunt and uncle lived all the way in St. Louis. And that $30 got him to St. Louis. I didn't even know it. I called him on, on Monday to let him know that he got into Teen Challenge, that they accept him, that we had to have him there. And he said, well, I'll have to get back there. I'm in St. Louis. I was like, what? You know, what are you doing in St. Louis? He said, my aunt and uncle took me in, so I have a place to stay. That $30 was exactly enough gas to get me there. And uh, then they were able to make sure he got back. So Mike and I had just an incredible three-and-a-half-hour talk for a guy who's a brand-new believer that doesn't know, by his admission, doesn't know anything. He sure has a lot of wise uh, thoughts already about what it is to follow the Lord, and he's already excited to complete the program, and then he wants to go on a missions trip. This guy that doesn't, wasn't raised a church, he just knows about missions trips, but you know, this is things God's already planning in his heart. And he encouraged me, and I told him he's encouraging me. He'll encourage the church. 
And so it's going to kind of seem weird for me to transition to talk about this, but some of you notice my boys and sometimes one or other boys have been serving, taking up offering. And if you didn't know this, we didn't come up with that idea as a ploy, hey, maybe if kids take up the offering, people give more or something. It was actually that my boys were wrestling with service, and when we finally were trying to figure out what the issue was, because we kept correcting them and they get in trouble for, you know, not sitting still and all that, it's they, they were bored. They wanted to do not from the message or the worship, but they wanted to serve. You know, I, I've seen that really benefit my boys, um, letting them serve, even though it's easy to think they're too young to be ushers or too young to do this or that. And so God's really been teaching me a lot of things. I thought I'd just talk to you tonight and share with you that one of the concerns after you've been a Christian for a while is to dry up spiritually because it all becomes just status quo. You know, you go to your job and then you have service times. You go home. And if you're really, really doing well that week, you remember to read your Bible a few times, you know. And maybe you listen to some worship and you feel pretty spiritual about that. But when I search scripture... You know, I know some plant, some sow, and some water, but you know what? I used to use that to excuse the fact that I went years and years and years without any fruit, any any uh, disciples. And Mike's excited about coming back here. He wants to serve in the church when he gets back. But I want to challenge you that there are people all around you and your coworkers and th- people that you think would never accept the Lord. Maybe they've got addictions. Maybe they're just a businessman that has a bad attitude, or maybe they're a great person, and they're super nice, and they're a sweet person but they don't follow Christ. And you know, you'll never know what God can do with them until you stop the vehicle and you say, okay, my schedule's not important, more so than yours, God, and you just make yourself available. And just like the boys, they want to make themselves available, they want to serve. That is one of the key ingredients, I believe, to to a believer's life, growing and maturing in Christ is serving. Jennifer and I recently talked to some uh, friend of hers that she grew up with, and they had gone to try to pastor a church that was currently being pastored, but it was a family member, and they were going to retire. And, and uh, they just weren't sure what happened, but they just it, it fell apart. Um, and they came back, and they're just kind of getting themselves um, back in the swing of things, working some jobs, trying to figure out what God, you know, what, what they're, they're missing here. You know? And they, they made a statement that they said, you know, we've learned that we stop growing if we stop serving. We stop growing spiritually if we stop serving. And this is kind of a backwards thing, how I'm presenting this, because normally we have a need in the church that I'm thinking of, and I say, I, I say some things about why it's good to serve, and then I tell you, we need this, 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 there's an opportunity, this is what we need. And I'm not doing that tonight. I don't have any particular. There's plenty of places, but I don't have any particular one. Um, another missionary friend of mine, he was actually a pastor of a church in Monette, Missouri, and I was his uh, part, very part-time uh, associate pastor. He was Cuban and fluent in Spanish, but yet he, he did the English-speaking services, and I couldn't speak good Spanish, but he had me doing the Spanish services. And uh, it was a very odd situation. <laughs> but he went into several different missions where he worked with homeless and he said, you know, one of the best ways that I would reach people through the gospel is I get non-believers serving other people. He'd get them in the line, serving in the line. We'd think, oh, let's get all our Christians to serve the unbelievers. And he'd say, no, I, I, I show them what the way of Christ is, to be a servant and to 
and what he does in our lives. And he see, they see Christians, but they begin serving. And he says there's not every place that they can serve unless they're a believer. They couldn't be teaching a Bible class, obviously, but they could serve in the soup line. So I'm just going to challenge you to make that a matter of prayer. Um, God, where can I serve? You know, if New Song's where God's planted you, then there's a place for you to serve. There is. Um, Jennifer and I were at a church before this. My dad had pastored for 19 years, and um, the pastor that took it after him had been the youth pastor slash associate pastor. And, uh, you know, I'd go to him pretty often and say, is there anything I could do? And, and a lot of times he had a hard time thinking, I, could, I don't really know. Um, and I've seen that from my side. It's really hard for me to see with my eyes every single thing we need. And so, and, and thinking about this and just milling this over on the other part of the drive on the way home by myself, I thought, you know, some of this has been backwards. We've been, a lot of us have been looking to me to figure out where we need people to serve. And I really believe our church needs to look around and see what we need to be doing and serving. And if God's putting on your heart, then you need to fill that spot. And I really believe that. Is there sometimes that maybe it's not the right timing for us? Yes, but um, I just keep that as a matter of prayer. Um, that, that if you want to really truly begin to grow spiritually, um, that is one of the key components of growing is serving. Um, I find that principle even in the workplace. When I worked at CMI for Walmart, which was their insurance adjuster's haven, <laughs> they handled all the insurance claims. Annie worked there. Annie was my wife's boss at one time. And, um, you know, I was getting better and better at handling claims. And so I got promoted to be a trainer to train other people handling claims. And you think, okay, well, you know, I'd learned what I could, and so now I'm training other people. But actually, the most I ever learned about handling claims was teaching other people how to handle claims. And a lot of times we say, well, I can't, Pastor, I couldn't help. I couldn't help in a Sunday school class. I couldn't help or in a small group or, a, you know, whatever. I can't do that. I've never been able to do it in the church. I'm, I'm too shy or whatever. The best way for you, and, and they'll say, I, I don't know God's word good enough. I don't know this. The best way to know God's word better is to begin to read it so that you can tell others. And so don't let the enemy tell you that you aren't, you aren't qualified, that you aren't ready. Um, but I just think we need to really think about how we can get in and serve. I was stood in the back tonight on purpose and didn't come up front during worship because sometimes I miss sitting in the pew. You know, I was in this church before I was pastor, and I just wanted to, I just want to feel a part of the congregation again and not feel like I've got to always have the answers. And, you know, you guys are worshiping God. And, you know, I, I see the young ones that they may be hollering Bubba, but the Lord, the word says, make a joyful noise on <laughs> the Lord. And calling out for your Bubbas, that's about as joyful as you get. You know, we, we sometimes do worry about um, times of worship and worry about how things appear and all that. But, you know, the Lord just really wants us to worship in spirit and truth. And so with that, I want to get into our message, continuing on with Revelation in Revelation chapter 4, because tonight will really be a, a focus on worship. We've been on this series now. This is the fourth part of it. But I, I want you to think for a moment <clears throat> about, uh, have you ever seen one of those car giveaways where if you put your hand on it, the last person to take their hand off gets the car? We actually know somebody that won a car that way, is driving it now. But, you know, it's whoever's the last person to stand, put their hand on it. You know, you got people laying down, keeping their hand on the car. You got them, you know, leaning, doing whatever they can, staying on one foot, 
doing all kinds of crazy contortions of their body to keep that hand on there. What's interesting about that is you, and normally people would not make all those funny actions and contort their body like that for any other reason than if there's a big payoff. So tonight I want to look at this scripture from a little bit of an aspect of something of that nature or even when you think about think about a ball stadium. When, when you go to a ball stadium and you see these guys who literally put their life at risk and there's been guys who have died doing it, reaching over to catch a ball, you know, they're, they're putting themselves way out there over the edge, teetering just barely to catch that ball because it's coming from, from their players, right? Well, when we look at this scripture, we're going to see a glimpse of the throne room of God, really almost the center, uh, really the center of the universe, if you will, because it's the center of the universe because God sits there. And so when we look at this, it's almost like looking at a major stadium here and, and the players that are on the field. And, and because of this vision that's uh, given here, um, we're able to have a glimpse into this throne room. And I hope at the end of this message that we'll have a, a, a different focus on the importance of worship, not just from the aspect of why it's important to God, but why it's important that we are willing to go all out in worship. We're going to be looking at, uh, it's kind of like one of those programs you pick up at the uh, sporting event. You know, I'm not a big sports fan. I've said that before, except for like UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championships, you know, the mixed martial arts fighting. Um, that, you know, I haven't watched it in a long time. I don't know who's popular now, but I used to watch it all the time. And, um, you know, when they start out, they do the tail of the tape. So they've got the, they've got the guys up there and all their stats, you know, and they've got their descriptions and all because that adds to the fight. Instead of you just ding, ding, and you see these two guys fighting, you kind of see who's got the advantages, who's got the longer reach, who's got this and that. And so you get this tail tape, or if you go to a ball game, they give you a program that uh, talks about the players and sometimes gives their batting averages and gives their experiences. So we're kind of looking at a playing field, if you will, the throne room of heaven, and the players are those that the apostle John saw uh, when taken by the Spirit into the throne room of heaven. If you're here for the first of the series, I showed a video, and it was uh, a British gentleman, or an English gentleman, trying to depict John, so the accent was far off, but, uh, and probably appearance, but it was a pretty good rendition of what Scripture says John experienced, but it cut off just before we got to the actual throne room of God. Where we saw was when he saw the, uh, the, the candlesticks, right, and the, the flaming candlesticks, and so... Revelation chapter 4, um, verses 1 through 3, says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So we, we begin as we come to this throne room. We don't have any reference as to the expanse or anything at, at, from this description, but comes into the throne room and begins to describe the appearance of it. And we begin looking at the center of it, uh, more literally the center of the universe, the throne of God. And people have been searching. What's interesting about this is um, <clears throat> not a lot of people do read a Revelation unless 
you're a new believer. Most people that re- start with Revelation are people who have been new believers, have been um, exposed to or been practicing in, in either witchcraft or mysticism because this book really kind of feeds the curiosity because you get some interesting creatures described here. You get some interesting things about um, the heavens. But throughout humanity, man has been searching the heavens for meaning. From the early Egyptians to the Babylonians and even today, eyes are turned to the heavens to find meaning and purpose. Even today, as I said, astrology or divination based on the position of stars in the universe in relation to the earth. You know how many people I talk to who are either new believers or just about to make a decision, especially in the jail. We just had this talk a few weeks ago with a group of guys that some of them go to their horoscope and they actually believe that that was a spiritual thing equal to being a Christian. So in other words, there's no, there's no disconnect there between looking at your horoscope or going to a palm reader or reading your Bible and following Jesus. And largely that's because we have seen a movement since the 80s with the psychic networks and those things of a, a spiritualist movement. It's nothing new. The Bible describes the very same things going on back then. Remember the demon-possessed woman that kept following Paul and annoying him? She kept... She was telling the truth, like, these are men of God, and she's proclaiming things, calling out, kind of mocking. And finally, Paul has enough and turns around and casts a demon out, and that's what gets Paul in trouble, remember? Because they were using her demon-possessed abilities to do all kinds of sorcery, that kind of stuff. You know, they were selling her abilities as a demon-possessed woman, a a sideshow, if you will. And so, all of a sudden, their money-making went away because she's delivered. And then later we see a reference to them going back after they get thrown in prison and, and uh, you know, the, the prison uh, doors get opened and th- they go back and visit her. But anyway, so this isn't anything new. But we see that this has been something that man has searched for. Now the Babylonians were more studious in their search and several wise men were searching the heavens for signs based upon biblical prophecy for the coming of the king. We don't think about astrology when we get to Christmas, right? And we're talking about them following the star. You know, we just like the picture of the three wise men, right? And the star. We don't think of the fact that they, that they actually, that there's astrology involved there. And I'm not talking about it in a bad way, but I'm saying that they were searching the sky, they see a sign, and they follow it to find Jesus. And the star happened, a uh, star appeared in the east, and off they went and found the Messiah. But as we look at the heavens, the Bible reveals there are three signs that are referenced that, that um, are similar to this as far as looking to the heavens. The first is our atmosphere. In 1 Kings 14.11, it talks about the birds of, of heaven or the birds of the air. And then there's a mention which, which uh, a terminology has been given in, in some modern translations to the second heaven, which is uh, mentioned as the universe. Basically, the second heaven as the, the total of the universe In Deuteronomy 4.19 it says, Take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and and all the host of heaven. So using heaven as reference to the totality of the the universe, the expanse of the universe beyond our planet. And then the warning is for us not to worship these things. So in that scripture it's basically saying, you know, when you look up, don't be worshiping the stars. Don't be worshiping the moon, the sun, that that's, that's not God. And um, although that is up in the heavens, those aren't to be worshipped. The third heaven, as it's referenced in modern translations, is the dwelling place of God. 
This was a place where Paul went in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4, 2 through 4, when he was caught up to the third heaven, which he describes as paradise. So this third heaven is where the throne of God resides. This is where we, when we say heaven, we often think of heaven um, as where the throne room of God is. So beyond our universe, a throne is set in heaven, Revelations 4.2. And when we look at what happens in the six, uh, six verses of chapter 4, it becomes clear that everything in heaven is located in relationship to it. So these first six verses say, around the throne, from or out of the throne, uh, before the throne, and in the midst of the throne. So with this language and the positioning of these words, it lets us know that the throne is really the hub and everything else that's connected with heaven is the spokes, if you will, or the, or the outreach of that throne. So that is the central point. That is the focus point is the throne of God there. And the reason everything centers upon the throne is because the Lord is the one sitting on it. So the throne itself is not the importance. It's not the chair or the throne or whatever it is, the, the throne that is, it, as it appears, it's the fact that the Lord God Almighty sits on it. And when I think about this, uh, I like to think of it as the, like the North Star has been what it's been to humanity for all time. So <clears throat> I have a lot of friends still that, are in, that have, are in the Navy or have been in the Navy, and some of them get into sailing after, you know, just fitting, I guess. But sailors still will use, in times of desperation especially, they'll use the North Star as a guidepost. So if, if they're getting off course or if they're having problems with their, uh, their electronic devices that are they're navigating them, then they'll go to the North Star. So like the North Star is set in the heavens and is constantly guiding sailors on their way, the throne of God is fixed center of the universe. Now since the North Star is the only con- constant with stars and galaxies in constant rotation, God... Could God's throne, let me ask you this, this is just a curiosity. This isn't anything we're going to chase for very long here. But in studying this, I thought, could God's throne reside in the space behind the North Star? Because behind the North Star, they've actually discovered that there, is, there exists an empty space. So this guidepost that they believe the North Star is what guided to the Messiah, who now still sailors use as a guidepost, that there is verifiably a a blank space behind the North, spot, North Star, whereas they can see uh, other areas that are all full of different things in the universe, that's an empty space. And so stars and galaxies are found in all directions, but there is an empty space in the northern part of the universe, and this brings what Job said to the forefront, because Job, he says, and it wasn't until... And he didn't. He said this, but it wasn't until we had the Hubble telescope and all these other huge telescopes that we found out that there was even an empty space out there. But Job says this clear back then. So keep in mind, here's Job, lived several, you know, thousands of years ago, and he's saying this. And it wasn't until we had the Hubble telescope that man really knew scientifically that there is this empty space. Job said, "God stretches out the north over empty space." And he covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it in Job 26, 7 and 9. And so the center of the universe and of, of the center of our lives is the Lord. And when we look to him, as the sailors look to the North Star to guide them, 
he will guide us. So it makes what Job said even more interesting given scientific findings of, of later time period. So now Paul describes the Lord God who is sitting on throne, and the question is, how do you describe what is undescribable? Um, I can't remember the, uh, the minister's name. I think he's gone in the past, but you've seen, the, you've seen the, or heard the um, message put to words, that's my king. Anybody ever heard of that? That's my king. And he goes through trying to, he goes through all these things trying to describe God using words from the Bible and otherwise. And at the end he said, he said he's undescribable. And that ploy in words is true. How do you describe something that's undescribable? Here's, here's something that's described, described in here that we can look for meaning in. It says, why, that, why do they use jasper and sardius stone chosen to represent the Lord God? So why are these stones used? In other words, in this, in this vision that's given, he, he sees these things, and why are these stones used as a reference to describe this throne room of God? The interesting thing about these two stones is that they represent the first and the last tribes of Judah. Some of you may remember that I've said that if you really, uh, one of the classes I had in Bible college, you had to take one scripture and try to trace it back, its meaning from begin, the beginning of the Bible through to the end. In other words, if the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, then every passage has to be related to that. And so we thread that through. So the interesting thing about this, it lists the, tribe, the, the first and the last tribes of Judah. The jasper represents Reuben, the first son of Abraham, and the, while the sardius represents Benjamin, the youngest son. They are the first and the last. So this is the description that's used in the Bible for the Lord throughout the Bible. He is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And next, the name Reuben means behold a son, while Benjamin means son of my right hand. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is called the first begotten and also the firstborn from the dead who is now at the right hand of the father so next the color of both stones is reddish so both these stones are described have a reddish color and the symbolism of blood is, is seen here so both of them are red the symbolism of blood and then they represent god's holiness and justice so next we see a rainbow is mentioned all around the throne in the appearance like emerald or green Green is given the color of life. It's something, uh, if something's green, it's living. And if we serve a living God, not like the dead gods of the other religions, further, the rainbow represents God's mercy and grace as that sign of his covenant made with humanity after the flood. If there's anything to me that speaks to, and you, you know I don't get on this topic a whole lot, um, because I believe the Holy Spirit will do the conviction if we preach the truth, but what the rainbow is being used to symbolize now, what's interesting to me is was a promise from God that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. But this is a symbol. This is a symbol of his covenant made with humanity after the flood, but it represents God's mercy and grace. But yet the scripture speaks against what it's being used for. So in other words, now, I believe we're at the end times, we're seeing that rainbow symbol 
being used kind of as defiance. Like, here's your promise. You can have it back. Here's your promise. I'm defying your I'm defying the history of what this means. Revelation 4.4 4 in the English Standard Version says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now these 24 elders do pose some difficulty for some in translation because while more recent scholarship points to the possibility of them being angels, in other words, these 24 elders are really just some type of angel. Or they're an angel that has a different responsibility than others. They're elders. And it has several real challenges to that, including the fact that they are wearing white robes, which in Revelation are described as being worn by the saints. So if you see a reference in Revelation to someone wearing white robes, then that's in relation to the saints. And in Revelation, um, they, they're white to, um, to snow, they're white as snow, and that represents the righteousness of Christ being made white through the blood of the Lamb. So talk about the white horse where Jesus comes back riding. This, this picture of white is really a symbolism. Um, it's not that it's not actual what it would be, but it symbolizes the relationship between Christ and what he's done for us to redeem us. He's made us white as snow. So you see the rose being used to that, the white, and you see um, reference to Jesus with the white to him. So... It's also seen in the song sung by these 24 elders to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb, Jesus Christ. Uh, they're all saying that the ones redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and this found in Revelation 5.9. So what's being sung and praised to God, what's being worn by these elders, all point to that these are the redeemed humanity. And the crowns we see on their heads are not royal crowns or diadems, but rather they're a victor's crown, or Stephanos, as the actual term is. These are crowns worn by redeemed humanity, so it's like the victor in, a, in, a, um, in some kind of championship. It's like the, the prize that they would wear for running a race or from um, completing uh, a, a, um, some kind of sports event. So we see these more as victor crowns. And then on the saints who died during the tribulation, it says that they overcame the devil and the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So it's better to see them as redeemed humanity, um, either as the 12 patriarchs and 12 disciples or as representation of the redeemed humanity and priesthood. So before we get too muddled here, where I'm going with this is everything around the throne of God, there's worship going on, but there is a lot of there, there's a lot of, there's creatures that we're going to get into here. There's these um, elders, um, all this reference to the colors and the symbolism. And then we get into uh, Revelation 12, 21, 12 through 14. It says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the case for them representing the priesthood of redeemed humanity, um, we can see it over and over again um, through this. 
Um, it's also seen in First Chronicles 24 when King David divided up the Levitical priesthood into 24 groups who were to serve the temple in, in uh, uh, the two-week stints during the year. And then if we go back and we look at Revelation 2, verses 4 through 5, it says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he, here we see the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. But before we get to his description, we see proceeding from the throne, lightning, thunder, and voices. And I see this as God's pronouncement of his greatness, his righteousness, his judgment upon humanity, wickedness. And as humanity has broken God's law and rejected, it's his means of redemption. So his son Jesus took humanity's place on the cross, and Jesus took our place and died, uh, died the death that we all deserved. So this throne room of God, you've got representation of the whole story, the redemption story of what Christ did on the cross, even going back. So when you think of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, and it wrecked what God had planned for man here on earth, to have a relationship with him and to be a place without sin. So we have a, we have a couple do-overs, if you will. Not on, the only one that's a whole of all humanity is the flood. So Noah and his family, the only one's found righteous, right? And God wipes out the whole earth with a flood. Everything, every living creature, gone except for what's on the ark. We all know that story, right? So this is like the first attempt of a total redemption. But then sin comes in again, right? And so God sends his son to redeem man, and that's where we hear the terminology of being washed as white as snow and all this. So, so then... <clears throat> We're going to get to the final judgment, right? And people have their final chances, and then they go to heaven. Now, there's some that says that we'll still come to know the Lord during the tribulation, so there'll still be some saints there. So we're looking, peering into this throne room of heaven, and every symbol in there is basically the Bible on display in symbolism and representation through colors and other symbols. This is what John's seeing, is the totality of God's word is surrounding the throne. And so when you take that and then this puts a focus on worship significantly, very significantly, we can start to pull from all this I just read and about to lose you on, we could pull from this how God sees the importance of how we worship him and how that ties into everything we know from scripture and how we worship him. So we... We see this as God's pronouncement of righteousness, as I said, and I'm not surprised that at this same thing that proceeds from God um, is the same thing as the... I'm sorry, let me back up. When it came to pass, we're going to read a little scripture here in uh, Exodus 19.16. It says, When it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so all the people who were in the camp trembled. And this is in reference to when um, God uh, was giving the law to M Moses on Mount Sinai. And speaking of this event, it says the sound of the trumpet was the voice of the Lord. And the people begged that his words not be spoken to them anymore in Hebrews 12, 18 and 19. So then John sees the Holy Spirit as 
seven lamps of fire. Interesting thing about this, you don't find any description, physical description of the Holy Spirit anywhere. But in this instance, John sees the Holy Spirit as taking a form of these lampstands. We only see the Holy Spirit taking form of a dove before, tongues of fire in the Acts account. So we don't ever see a physical description of the Holy Spirit, but we do here see them, John sees them as the lampstands. There's not seven separate spirits, but rather there are seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit, and that's, that's in reference to the seven lampstands as well. The, Holy, the Bible describes uh, this as the Holy Spirit's ministry to the Messiah. It says in Isaiah 12, or I mean 11 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. So how can you describe the Holy Spirit? Well, he's not humanly visible unless he embodies some other form. So it's only when the Holy Spirit came as a dove at Jesus' baptism or when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, as I mentioned. So <clears throat> Revelation 4, 6 through 11 says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, listen to this, this is where the focus is really starting to shift here to the importance of worship in here. So whenever these creatures, these four living creatures say holy, when they begin to, uh, when they get, begin to say holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It says in verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then verse 10, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, who receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They're casting their crowns, the things they earned. These are, uh, these are in a place of importance, being listed as elders, not as the mass crowd, but they are the elders there before the throne. And every time that the four creatures say, holy, 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 and go through that, they fall to the face and they cast their crowns before him as an act of worship. So if you can imagine, if we just went back to even the, the times of um, the, the big games in Rome where they were fighting for their lives and you'd have the, my mind's going blank, but the, um, the gladiators, the Colosseum and the gladiators, that you know, they, would, they would win some prize if they were the last one standing, right? And for you to have given your life or, or almost given your life for something, but then to lay it down at the, the foot of the king and say, you're the one that's worthy of this. It's representation of 
The fact that there will be never anything greater than the sacrifice that Jesus made when he gave his life. You see, there'd be no other reason when they earn that crown to, in an act of worship, take that crown off that they might have been, they, they could have been martyred for. You know, there's, there's all kinds of possibilities there. But these, these elders, to cast their, thro- their crowns before the king, there's only one reason they would do that is if the sacrifice that the king made is greater than the one they made. So as we continue in God's program, if you will, this program of the main arena, we see the strangest creatures, the four living creatures that are, that are around the God's throne. And we, we may be the same as the, they may be the same as the seraphim of Isaiah 6 who had six wings and how they were before the throne of God crying, holy, holy, holy. And so some will say, well, it says six wings here. Or there's this many wings and there's difference, but... Um, we don't know f- whether they're seeing the exact same creatures or if there's other creatures of a slightly different kind. So um, there's two different references there. But we also see the four living creatures in Ezekiel's vision, um, each having faces, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And when compared to the living creatures in Revelation, we see a difference. And it's four wings versus six. So how do we reconcile the difference in those? Like I said, um, it's possible just from a different perspective vantage point uh, or for a different purpose they're they're seeing a different creature uh, but i don't i don't see it as a problem for this this passage in ezekiel god's throne is on the move throughout the universe whereas john is taken to the center of the universe and the throne room of god so some could which is not my stance necessarily argue well he's seeing a moving picture and the other guy's brought right in john's brought right in and he's standing there seeing this um there's some real interesting symbolism and links like the living creatures linked to the four gospels. Uh, the lion with Matthew's gospel, which presents Jesus as king. So we can see a tie there. Here's another one, the ox with Mark's gospel, which speaks of Jesus as the servant of the Lord. So we see a tie with the theme of the book and with what's being seen around the throne of God. Um, the man with Luke's gospel, which emphasizes Jesus as humanity. And then finally, the eagle with John's gospel, which features Jesus' deity. And so, while there are other sorts of comparisons, like the characteristics of the creatures to the Lord's attributes, all these are speculations. What we know is that they are the closest to God's throne and surrounded all sides. And speaking of them being guardians, having eyes all about them speaks of them being aware and alert as to what's happening in the realm and their function is to glorify and honor God day and night without stop. Now, I don't think I'm stretching here when I say when you look at this and these creatures and what's happening and the worship that's going on and the focus here, what, what the act is being done, is the fact that they're aware of what's going on around them. And in the midst of that, they are, they are praising God, but they're fully aware of what's going on around them, is that we are called out to be very aware of what everything is going on around us, but, but not let that hinder us from praising God with everything we have. Some have talked about how weird they look and how would God create them in this manner, but he did so that they could fill their function and purpose. If you think they're strange, then consider God's creation of like the ostrich. I think that's one of the strangest animals there is. Or the duckbill platypus. Or um, armadillos. I mean, some of them I think, you know, we could have done without that one, you know, but 
God saw them as important. Um, John finishes by recording uh, their praise. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for, your created, for you create all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. In Revelation 4, 8 and 11. So, one thing we see in heaven is constant praise of God. And so my question isn't why we won't, you know, my question is if it's constant praise there, then why don't we do it here? You know, I've said this before. It's it, when Jennifer and I felt a call to ministry, we got convicted that we weren't witnessing consistently and seeing people saved. And we're like, what makes us think because we get a title or uh, credentials or get a position in ministry that we'll be doing it then? And what baffles me in, in the church today, and I'm not just talking about our church, the church as a whole, is because we see so much action going on in worship to God. In this reference and others, I'm talking about David, dance like David danced. You know, we, we see all this expression, this outward expression of God, and we see in heaven and throne room of God that the created things that God has created, these creatures and the elders, there's all this action taking place. Then how can we think that we're going to feel like doing it there if we aren't here in other words look at it this way how many how what happens with a church in a country where Christ, christians are persecuted in general what do you know of that what happens generally when the church is persecuted in a country they go on the ground but it grows in number See, that's what's actually happening right now in the church. Denominations are reporting that the church is actually growing nationwide. Now, in the states, we're declining. But, na- but well, I'm sorry, worldwide. But worldwide, we're growing. Because the pressure's on, and now you've got to really decide, do you believe this for real? Because now either your life's on the line, or your livelihood, or your, your money, or your property, or something. Now it gets real, right? And so, what I believe is if you have the pressure here, of the sin and having to conquer that and the struggle and the strife to get in and you get in the presence of God and you don't feel like expressing yourself to God and worship now, what makes you think you'll want to do it then in heaven? Oh, I thought we were going to go on autopilot. I thought God was just going to zap us and make us. Well, yeah, we'll be perfected. I, I get that. I, uh, yes, there won't be any more sin. And yes, when you are in front of the holy God, it says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, Right? What I'm saying is, is why would you want to put off expressing yourself in worship to God until you get there and you're in a spot where because of his holiness and you're there, you have to. I'd rather know that I did it when I wanted to. I did it when people would think I'm weird. I did it when my knees hurt. And now I'm in heaven and I don't have a hurt in my knees anymore. I guess I'll have knees. I don't know, Ken, but... uh, if I have knees, if we have joints or whatever we have and are perfected bodies, then it won't hurt because we know Scripture says that. What I'm saying is this is not a guilt trip. This is not a trying to bend your arm to worship in a different way than you are now other than to say is it comes from the heart, though. See, I can raise my hands and do all kinds of flag movements. movements. You know, I can be like the, the halfway spiritual. I can be the fool, the goalpost, whatever. You know, I could do all the things to make everybody think I'm spiritual, but it's not going to do anything for your spirit. What I'm talking about is something that's generating the heart that, that motivates you to praise. So I know I'm going through reading about these creatures and everything, and when you read Revelation, you're like, wow, what is all this about? 
But when we get to this scripture, it's all about worshiping God forever and ever and ever. And if I think about worshiping forever and ever and ever, that's not forever and ever and ever starts when I get to heaven. That starts now. Let me tell you how I see this playing out. Here, are the, here they are seeing God in the fullness of his glory. And every time a new aspect of God's glory is revealed and the elders again and again for the all eternity hit the ground in total awe, there's nothing boring about this. Throughout eternity, you're going to be seeing a new aspect of God's glory and all you can do is hit the ground. So I want to I go back to my initial illustrations, which probably have been lost totally in the mix at this point, but you win that car if your hand stays on there and your legs get tired and so you'll kneel and everything, but you're going to win that car. You're going to be the last one, so you keep your hand on it. Or you're at your sporting event, and I may die getting that baseball, but that's my player, and I'm getting that ball. So I'll look like a doofus reaching over, putting my life on the line for that baseball. When I'm at the Razorbacks, if I'm a Razorback fan, and, and they score a point, I'm like, ah, and I'm chest bumping the next person, you know, and, and knocking people over and slapping the guy next to me and coming with war paint on, you know. And, and we see those things, and it's great, and it's fun. But then we get into a place of worship where we've got a worship leader who has spent time, prayer, and preparation, and, and you can feel the presence of God. And you're like, I'm just tired, God. That's why I'm not raising my hands. God, I'm just, you know, this has been a hard week, and I'm just, I, maybe raising your hands isn't a thing. You know, God, I, I see people going to that altar, but, you know, my knees hurt, and this and that. Listen, the church worldwide is sacrificing their lives for the opportunity to praise him one more time on this earth. Why aren't they saying, you know what? I guess I can stop. They're going to kill me anyway. I'll just wait till I get to heaven and do it. You know, they're waiting until they come beat the door down as they're praising God and dragged about. Wives, children, babies, infants, and horrible atrocities, all for the opportunity to worship the king of kings while it's hard. And I don't know what it was that took me so long to get the book of Revelation, but the more I prepare for this, it's hard. Some of this, for me to try to explain it, I have to do a lot of digging. Because, you know, I'm looking, I was like, I don't know what these four creatures mean, God. You're going to have to show me something. I'm glad there's some smart people wrote books on it, because that's about the only way I'm going to figure this out. You know, Holy Spirit illuminated. Oh, he's not doing it. Okay, uh, show me a book then. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, Pastor Jim that started this church, I don't reference him a whole lot, because there's not a lot of people left here that really knew him. You know, it doesn't carry the same weight as it did before. He used to annoy me when he was my youth pastor. Come on, go after God, church. Go after God. Remember it, Ken? Come on, go after God. Raise your hands. And I used to sit there defiant saying, you know what? It's not real. If you're having to tell me to do it, I'm not going to do it. I am not going to raise my hand. I'm not even going to raise a finger other than to maybe point at you when you turn around. I mean... You know, you'd have to know Pastor Jim and the kind of relationship. I was, you know, we were like his kids, and so we misbehaved like his kids, you know. And, and you know, quit saying go after God. It just distracts me. And we laugh about it, but how many times have you been in a church and worship service and something the worship leader does, it just sets you off. I don't like it when they do this. I don't like it when they play this song. Well, why are they doing so many hymns? That's old stuff, and we don't talk like that anymore. And then the older folks are saying, you know what? church used to be a lot different when we sang those old hymns and maybe it'd be better if we went back to them and you know you list some of the lyrics of some of the new stuff coming out maybe there's some fruit to it too you know <laughs> i guess i'm getting older um <clears throat> but in all seriousness guys this this is this is as real as it gets 
we're reading Revelation. That is the closing of the story. That is the that is the, at the that is at the um, ninety yard line, right? <laughs> I'm not a football fan. I couldn't tell you one rule of football. There's you know ten yard line. There you go. Yeah, well, unless you're a really fast runner, then it could be the ninety. Right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> unless you're really good. <laughs> and, but you're at the ten yard line, right? This is this is the game point. This is everything, and John's seeing a glimpse into uh, he's the the arena with the the main players there, and the coach or whatever you want to say, the owner of the team, however you want to now symbolize God in that role. But trying to put clever, being clever aside, the truth of the matter is, is John was getting that vision to point us in the right direction of how we should be doing things now. Not to just think, oh, that's going to be cool when we see that. It's going to be cool when we see all those creatures and stuff. He's saying, look, there, I saw amazing things. Things I don't completely understand. Um, but I did see that every time those creatures start calling, holy, holy, holy. I saw those elders, the important ones, right? The ones were seated in a place of importance. They were are standing in a place of importance that they hit their knees, they went for God, and they cast their prize before the king. We can't wait till we get to church after we've been slapping the kids, <laughs> not really, but after we've been hollering at the kids in the car and frustrated and we came from work and all that, we can't wait till we're in here to expect to all of a sudden get this, experiential, this spiritual experience from God if we aren't already anticipating it earlier in the day, the day before, and praying, God, no matter what happens that service, no matter if the sound equipment quits, no matter if Ken gets sick and he can't be here, no matter, and, and Danny's sick too, and so now we have nobody to play keyboard, you know, whatever happens that suits our fancies, no matter what happens, God, I need to worship you, and I want you to begin to prepare my heart now. Today, back after talking to, I just told Mike, I said, Mike, new converts are the lifeblood of believers. It really is, because you all of a sudden feel new again yourself. You start to see God opening their eyes to things. He, the fact somebody gave him 30 bucks, and that was how much it took him exactly to get to St. Louis. He just kept going back to that. He goes, how, how, did they, how did they know? I mean, I mean, how did they hear God? He kept asking me, like, how did they, how did they know it was $30? And how, how did they know to give it to me? And did, did you tell them about me? I was like, I don't even know who it was. Maybe... Maybe they know a little something about you. I don't know, but God told them to give you $30, and that's what they did. And I said, I'll be honest with you. If God spoke to me to do it, I would have. But without God speaking, I'm like, I'm not putting $30 cash in your hands because I'd be afraid that we'd have a relapse and then we wouldn't get the teen challenge. But God knew that he needed it from someone else because he knew I was already going to help him. But for God to speak to someone else made all the difference. And even though we didn't, we weren't having a worship service in the car, there was a lot of worship going on because we were just praising God and thanking him for everything he had done and how he's starting to speak to him and interact with him. And so I'm going to challenge you. When you come into this place on Wednesday nights, and Ken, would you come? When you come to this place, Wednesday nights, Sundays, whenever, you come to college and career, young adults, uh, and they're doing worship, don't let there be distractions. You know, any way when we're, fussing with one of the kids there because they're making noise. When I preached in Honduras, you had kids running everywhere. I mean, they preached over it and praised over it. You just got louder for Jesus. 
you know, <laughs> for the kids. But in here in the States, you know, we're so worried about disruptions and so we, we you know, different culture. But, but uh, you know, those kids and their innocence before the Lord is another part of that lifeblood of the believers here. We stifle those kids, and I'm not talking about that situation, but we stifle those kids when they're expressing themselves. You know, used to when kids start going up the altar and some were mine. Um, one of my boys, I really believe that he was going up just to kind of take a nap because it was really frequent, like as soon as church started and he was there, you know. I mean, I'm a dad, and I know how he kind of, you know. And I had to make this choice. I'm like, God, do I go address that with him because he needs to understand the right way to go to the altar, what that's about? Or do I be satisfied with the fact that he's comfortable going to the altar, whether his motives are right yet or not, and let the Holy Spirit work on the motives? And I decided to let it go. This was quite a while ago. I decided to let it go and just let God speak to his heart. And you know, I believe probably it was what I thought at the beginning, but it's not that way now because there's other kids in the church. You know how much I see our kids going to the altar and praying for each other? Almost every service. I'm not trying to step on toes here, but really, let's just be honest with ourselves. I'm not, this isn't pastor hitting on you. This is me too. How many times are we down there praying with each other? We're not, it's not time yet to hand the keys off to the church to the, that generation. They need to be trained and raised and we've got to show them the way. Thank God they're getting it even without the example. You know, being there every time in front of them. But why should we let that happen? Why should we let those kids have to get it without us being part of that. God designed us to be their parents, to, to design us to be their elders. Even if it's not your kids, God's placed you in this church and given you a relationship with him and a desire to praise him and, and you feel that little move in your spirit when the music begins to play, then show those kids, hey, you know what? I'm going to let my pride and everything go. I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing to me. I'm going to quit worrying about what people think. So I just want Ken to begin to play. This is going to be our formal closing. But I'm just going to say these altars are never closed always come in and if God moves on you move to altar raise your hands to get on your knees to lay flat on the floor on your face you know we've had these baskets that are now gone that had these little blanks in there you ever wonder what those were for this is what if ladies were in skirts and they wanted to just lay out the Lord we could give them a cover up right they're getting dust on them I'm not saying that's what we need I'm just saying you know what I mean we were preparing for God to, to move in ways where we were anticipating, expecting that things might get really uncomfortable for folks, you know? And they might start to express themselves in ways that we need to be thinking ahead on that. And I, I kind of felt sad pulling them down when we were kind of straightening things up up here. We also have anointing oil that we were keeping up there pretty regularly, and I, I use that to pray for folks. But, you know, it's not just the pastor's job to anoint folks with oil and pray for them. It's the elders of the church. Well... How old is that? I guess probably more on how long you've been a Christian, whether you know the word well enough to be praying and anointing people with oil. Amen? Anyway, I want us to worship in the closing time and uh, just spend, a, spend whatever time God allows you, and then you're dismissed when you feel released. And this is a competition about how long you stay. It's what you get before you go. All right? Let's praise the Lord.